Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, sitting down on a snowy day here in Boulder, Colorado with that lover of organization, Coach Trevor Connor. Take a guess at how many Trello accounts that guy has. My God, it's a lot. Which brings me to the theme of the day season planning. We all understand that to race or ride at our best, we need to periodize our season, and that has to do with planning. It's obvious and essential for a pro who's racing upwards of 80 races in a season to plan ahead to periodize. Simply put, they wouldn't survive if they went hard all the time. They need a base, they need rest, and they need peaks. But what about those of us who only have three or four races in a single season? Or to take it one step further, what about those of us who don't race at all or just have a single Grand Fondo at some point? How do we map out our seasons and prepare for those few events? Do we still need to periodize? Can we be on form all year round? Today, we'll dive into those questions and talk about first what we can learn from the pros. Even though they do a lot more races, the same physiological principles apply when you're talking about reaching your best form and pros have learned a lot about how to do that right. Next, we'll talk about what you can't take from pros. The simple fact that they do so many races means they can race themselves into shape. That's a lot harder to do when you have a month between each of your events. So we'll talk about what not to mimic. Next, we'll dive into a few scenarios, including one in which you have four or five races in your season and they're all within a short time frame. A second scenario in which you have four or five events, but they're spread out with long periods of time between each. Another scenario of doing a single big event. And finally, the scenario in which you don't participate in any official events, but love to hit the local weekly group ride. Today, we're using a roundtable format with three top-level coaches to answer these questions. Our first guest is the now-famous, much-loved Colby Pierce. Also joining us is the always infamous, sometimes loved, Grant Holicky with Forever Endurance. I kid, of course, Grant is just as special, if not more so. And who's that third top-level coach? Well, we're giving Trevor the benefit of the doubt. We're giving that top-level status to him, too. He's here, as always. As we've already mentioned on the show, there are some exciting things happening at Fast Labs. We're growing quickly. And we're particularly excited to have Colby and Grant on the show today because we're hoping to get them to be a more regular part of what we offer. Part of this Fast Labs family, if you will. Keep an eye on our website. That's fastlabs.com. And watch for future Fast Labs podcast channels on your favorite podcast app. And as always, reach out to us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Now, let's make you fast. So, Chris, we've been kind of excited to bring Aftershock headphones onto the, the show as one of our sponsors. Uh, as you know, I've been using them for for years. And I admit, when I first got mine, I thought they were just kind of gimmicky. They they claim to be bone conduction. So they sit on your, your cheekbones and they send vibrations to your cheekbones that go directly to your eardrum. That allows you to keep your ears open and you can hear your surroundings. And I remember just thinking, no, they just got speakers on them that just sit really close to mm -hmm. your ears and it's, it's completely a gimmick. But I remember was, you know, right after I got them, I actually put them on. I put my fingers in my ears to block my, my ear canals. 
and they actually got louder. Hmm. So this actually truly is, it, it is bone conduction. That's crazy. It goes through your cheekbones. And the advantage of this is if you're out for a ride and you want to listen to some music or listen to a, a partic- any particular podcast, mm. you can have these on, hear your music, but your ears are completely open so you can hear cars and everything else that's right. going on around exactly. you. Right, exactly. A lot safer that way. Of course, when I'm riding with Chris, I, I prefer to have the completely noise-canceling <laughs> headphones in, so I just don't have to hear them. <laughs> That's not nice at all, Trevor. Sorry, Chris. This episode was sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for cyclists providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks bundles, visit aftershocks.com. That's A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z dot com and use code FASTTALK. We are live in the studio. Five minute timer just stopped. <laughs> You're We're done. done. We're out. We're done. <laughs> Cut. Thanks for listening. Great show, everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, it is a pleasure to have our two, one of two of our favorite guests in the house today. We're going to do a little roundtable. We've got, I don't know how many years of coaching experience in the room, but like a hundred probably, probably close to a hundred years of experience, honestly. So it's a pleasure to have Colby Pierce, Grant Hollister. Thank you. And as always, Coach Trevor Connor here with us in the studio. How many years do you? Zero. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> well, I've coached Trevor in life skills. Perfect. Are you, a life, are you a life coach? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, well, I play one on a podcast. I'm, I'm here for you. Yeah, I know that feeling. You have done a horrible, horrible job. <laughs> hey, I'm trying. It's all Don't about the effort. Ever effort. hire Chris as a coach? Process-oriented coaching. The results aren't working out. <laughs> we'll get back to that in another podcast. Well, today... We want to talk about season planning, but we want to have it be a bit more approachable, a bit more practical for people out there that, first of all, aren't pros. Because I don't know how many pros are listening to our show. If they are, that's Mm -hmm. great. This show might not pertain to them so much, but uh, we've, uh, from our survey, gotten some results back saying, we love hearing from pros, but we want something that speaks to us a bit more. And a lot of people, amateur riders... They're racing, maybe they're doing one big event a year. Maybe they're doing a handful of events a year and they're spread out months in between. They're not doing 20 race days a year. They're not doing 50 race days a year for certain. So this episode is all about how to plan that season when you're doing limited racing. Colby, I actually got to ask you, what's the biggest season you've ever done? The most number of races? Um, I am sure I've had seasons that have had more than... 80 starts somewhere in there maybe maybe 90 with all the really dinky you know every dinky tuesday night track race or whatever yeah. but that was, that was back in the day that was back in the day yeah my, my biggest was 120 something starts wow 
show off total show off he he only <laughs> he only asked you the question so that he could throw that stat in there you're notice, probably right <laughs> notice <laughs> notice how he didn't ask me because then it just would have seemed like he was lying what's your right. biggest start total 35 i've had 120 <laughs> so you gotta have somebody like colby who he thought was going to be high and then he can just trump him mm-hmm. well you're mm-hmm. cross it's not a real sport. He's not just. <laughs> Whoa. Fair enough. Fair Whoa. enough. I'm, I don't we have an argument. The wrestling ring going. I don't. I don't have an argument for that. To be completely honest. Well, let's jump right in then, shall we? First of all, what can we learn from looking at how a, a pro plans their season? Are there things that we can take away from those that race upwards of eighty, a hundred times a year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing that I kind of try to really address with all my riders is that um, people, you know, if you start training with intent, meaning you're building load, adding load consistently on the bike from December 1, which is depending on what climate you're in, some athletes will do that. January 1 is also common and also depends on when your season, you know, some of your season goals are. Even for someone who's building, building and racing consistently, maybe you start racing in February or March, again, depending on where you are in the world. By the time you get to about the summer solstice, so about the third week in June, man, almost everybody, assuming they've had a relatively linear run, things have gone well, they've been building, they didn't, you know, get the flu for two weeks or break a collarbone or have any really big setbacks. Assuming that that build has been relatively linear overall, they almost always need a real break. That's the time when you start to be like doing a few rides where you're like, man, that stung, that climb, I that was the first time I really felt internally overheated. You've already got several months of hard training and racing under your belt, but you can't quite see the light at the end of the tunnel, assuming you're racing through August or September. It's the season's, the end isn't around the corner, but you've already got a ton of work behind you. So psychologically, it becomes a very long sort of tunnel at that point. And then physically, it's just the body doesn't respond to, people look at a calendar like, oh, 52 weeks in a year. That means I can train hard for 40 of them and lift. (laughs) That's not the way humans work. They just don't. Humans are seasonal Without getting down a tangent, this is one of the problems I have with Zwift and Trainer Road. Love you guys, but can't do criteriums all year long. So anyway, humans are seasonal. We're all seasonal animals. We have to kind of hibernate like bears a little bit. And then in the summer, we come out and run around and play in the mountains. Well, and I think it's really easy to get down this road of whether you're a world tour or master's rider, where do I put the brake? Go on vacation with your family and don't bring a bike. What? Yeah, I know. It's amazing, right? Like do a run. That's possible. Frolic in the surf. Um, But those breaks are really important. I think one of the things that you'll hear Colby and I talk about a lot, and we've talked about on this podcast in the past, start with where you're going to put your break. Mm -hmm. And then maybe build your season around that. Mm -hmm. And then if that needs to shift because you got sick or you broke a collarbone like I did or any of those things, then you shift it. But if you have a starting point and you know where your mid-season light at the end of the tunnel is, everything gets a lot simpler mm-hmm. and you can race full gas into that knowing i got three more weeks three more races and i get to really shut down for a little mm-hmm. bit of time i love the fact that i will often give athletes a, a break or they'll go on vacation with their family and be terrified that okay, i'm gonna be off my bike for 10 days i'm gonna lose all my fitness and then they come back and they do an interval set and crush the numbers yeah and they're amazing right they're like what happened? I thought I'd lose some fitness. You go, well, you probably lost a little fitness, but you're rested. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yep, and, if we, and if we look at the science, I mean, <laughs> what they lose is they lose freshness. They lose a little sharpness. They're not really losing fitness. The, the, the blood numbers are pretty similar right. through two weeks of bed rest, practically. 
at threshold or lower, I mean, you're going to lose some peak. You're going to lose some some of that top end, but you're not losing nearly what you think you're losing. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a swimmer, the the old swimming conversation when we were kids is one day off is a two-day setback. And it really messed with our brains. I mm. mean, you know, I have an yeah. athlete now that I still battle this with, and she's in this place was like, I took a day off. I'm three days behind. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I'm like, That's no, you took nasty. a day off. That's You're probably it. ahead. First yeah. of all, you yeah. just added a day of that formula. But secondly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some coaches had some really funky formulas. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and, and in this day and age, you know, and we're going to we're going to talk about this a lot. I'm sure of course, this this podcast, we're not talking about a pro rider. We're talking about somebody has a family, somebody has a job, somebody has a life outside or off the bike. That life load is extreme. And as Colby talks about the seasonal change. You have a job seasonal change. You have a family seasonal change. You have these rhythms and flows, and and you got to be able to buy into the rhythm and the flow. And I kind of understand where you go, and where we take our vacations. So many of us do it the same weekend every year. Spring break, if you have kids, mm-hmm. uh, Fourth of July, all those things. That's just such a simple way to start this whole system, and I think that ebb and flow and that rhythm is is crucial. So it sounds like we're saying the one thing that we can, you can take from pros, or one of the things you can take from pros is you still need to periodize your season. You can't go, I don't race that much, so I can just do high intensity, go really hard all the time. You still need the base, you still need that build, and you need a rest. Well, and I, and I think, you know, if you're not racing at all, maybe you're doing one Grand Fondo or something like that, or you're doing an early season crit, and then you're not doing another race for eight weeks, you know, how you build the base or when you hit the sharpness or all those things, that can be a little bit of a comfort thing that can be a little bit of where you like it and I, I have a lot of athletes that like to do the sharpness right away because it gives them something to think about instead of that monotonous base riding all the time in february when they're on a trainer but what we really and colby alluded to this 20 years ago 30 years ago it was all about race days it was all about racing into shape people didn't break breaks people didn't do that stuff but we know better now and so if they know better, they're the ones that are really doing the science. We should take that mm-hmm. from them. There's a beautiful kind of weird tension in the world of cycling across all levels. And as an analogy, I'll say, I mean, think about the step forward we took when we removed shifters from our down tube and added them to where our brake levers are. Like everyone would agree, except the old, the, the dinkiest old codger ever, <laughs> that that was a huge step forward. Not, point, not pointing at anyone in this not room. Not pointing at anybody. I have a bike with down tube shifters. Of course you do. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it was a massive step forward in, in performance, safety, all kinds of things, right? So- that's a big step forward. And and there are a lot of carryovers from the sport of cycling that people haven't quite let go of. And a lot of those carryovers exist in the world of bike fitting. There are lots of Italian wives tales and most of them are garbage. A few of them are quite useful, but most of them are complete crap. And it's the same thing with training. Um, there's some old, you know, the can you race yourself into shape, which I know we'll, we can talk about that as well. Yeah. Why don't we flip this around? We're talking predominantly about what you can observe that pros do about rest. What can we observe about pros when it comes to peaking that mm. can be applied to the the masters racer the amateur racer out there right so i would say one of the things that you can still apply when you look at a peaking schedule so let's say you even if you're just doing one grand fondo or one race a lot of people focus on that well i need that recovery what i would recommend is you also need that phase beforehand where you actually beat yourself up a bit mm-hmm. a couple of weeks before the event that week where you go I'm going to train harder. I'm going to train longer. I'm going to hit the end of this week fatigued. 
So I say, in order to peak, you have to have something to peak from. Yes. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just not training. Right. Yeah. So and keep in mind that training is stress the body, right? So it doesn't matter who your coach is or what the philosophy is. You may stress the body with volume. You may stress the body with intensity, depending on how much time you have available, all of those things. But yeah, you have to have a stressor period in order to taper off the stressor period. And otherwise, you just get stale. And to actually take that one point further, whether you are a pro or just doing the Saturday morning group ride, if you want to get stronger, the, the, that fundamental principle applies to everybody. It's, it's stress the body, stress the body to a level that it's not used to, and then recover and let it adapt. And a lot of people who don't race, they will still want to get stronger, and they get frustrated because they kind of do the same thing every All the week time. and right. really never stress themselves Stagnant. and then just say, why, why aren't I getting better? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to look at that on a micro scale and a macro scale, right? Macro being the whole season or a month or a training block. Look at it as a micro scale too. Maybe we want two-day blocks or three-day blocks and then recover off that three-day block. But what we do see is so many athletes who don't do a lot of racing, they're going to do the same loop every day or the same loop every other day and they just try to go faster on it. You know, I, I still think there's this prevalent idea of how many miles did you ride? And it's something that the pros have really moved away from. Yeah, they'll cover miles and they'll look at it later, but it's time. And we're doing so much based on time. You know, I was up for three hours. It doesn't really matter how far you went. And when you start looking at how far you went, that three hours starts to get a little bit faster. You get more aggressive. You get more aggressive because we're athletes or we're human nature. We want to do better than yesterday. Mm -hmm. And we've all been taught that by every Nike Mm -hmm. ad ever. Beat yesterday, (laughs) right? So we're going to try to be better than yesterday. What's Nike? (laughs) Um, They're just screwing us up all over the place. We wanted them as a sponsor. Oh, and you ruined it. Did we? We're just going to be able. It's an opportunity to educate the audience. (laughs) So, on that topic, um, if I can share a a story I've been telling my athletes recently, and that's about quantifying load and how athletes think about load. Things have changed significantly in the last several years with the addition of power meters because that tracks a rider's output. So before power meters were around, riders used to go for a three-hour ride, and they had maybe a heart rate strap, they had their cat-eye cyclometer so they could count time or a wristwatch, and they had speed. But of course, weather plays such a massive role in their results on that ride that no two rides are comparable. You can't do a ride in June and then a ride in August and compare them back to back and say, oh, I was faster in August for sure because of course, if the temperature change or pressure and humidity plays such a large role in that, that we have no idea whether you actually put out more power or not. Right? Well, and yeah, I, and I think it's it's great too on that same point. Um, you get into this idea of, I love it when the tour puts up the metric of that was the fastest time trial yeah. ever, right? And it was like, yeah. well, it was downhill with a tailwind. Of right. course it was of course fastest it was. time trial ever. Let me show up at that course. I weigh 180. I'll rip it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and I, you know, I listen to this all the time with triathletes. I know that it's a cycling show, so we shouldn't bring that up. But they, <laughs> they talk all the time about, you know, oh, I did my best mile swim time. I'm like, do you know how people measure a mile swimming course in a triathlon? They throw a buoy out there and yeah. go, that looks about right. Right. <laughs> and yep. so even if we have a laser sighter, yeah. this stuff's not relevant, right? Right. So right. I think that's that's a huge point yep. of um, time in the season, time of who you are, what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. There's so many metrics. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and output Variables. and response is right. Right. unbelievably different. Do you know I measured my swim time the last triathlon I did? Uh, an hourglass? Close. <laughs> I actually discovered that walking along the bottom of the pool, it was faster. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's saying something. Sprinting. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> With your feet on the bottom of the pool. I yeah. think that's cheating. Yeah, it might be. But, you know, Whatever. only if people can't tell. So compare this to 
someone like a high jumper. Now, how does a high jumper train? Let's say that their best PR of all times that they did last year at the world championships was six foot, zero inches. I'll use American units just because. Yeah. So does a high jumper then take their break after worlds, go back three weeks later, and then immediately set the bar to 11 foot, right. 20, you know, eight inches and try to best their PR? No. Do they set it to five, nine or five, 11 and just try to come barely under their PR and then work up in that single workout in quarter inch increments till they beat their PR? Do they, every single time they go and do a high jump workout, which might be two or three times a week, do they try to add a quarter inch to their previous PR? <laughs> no. You see where I'm going with this? Mm -hmm. What do we do with power meters? <laughs> we all glorify our best five minute effort ever, our best 20 minute effort ever, just because they conveniently fit in those bins and they've been beaten into us. Um, they're good durations to watch for obvious reasons. But every time we go out, if, if I went out and did 405 watts for five minutes, every single other five minute effort I ever do past that point is going to pale in comparison if it wasn't as good. Now, high jumpers understood this innately because they've always had a direct way to measure the actual output of every jump. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, there are tiny fractions of this and that, probably yeah. the track surface and probably wind, wind and temperature played bit, into yeah, it. Right. But those are minor in comparison to how those variables affect performance and cycling up a five minute hill or a 20 minute climb or even more so on a flat road for 20 minutes. So what I think a lot of cyclists and even coaches still haven't really grasped is that you have to look at your power output and your, your output as a rider seasonally and understand where it is in the big picture. And this is perhaps one of the most important roles as a coach is for us to constantly get the rider to back out and look at the forest and stop focusing on trees because they do an interval workout in March and you give them a four by four VO2 or five by five, five by five or whatever hard thing it is. And they go and they immediately look up their old power numbers and whatever software they're using. They go, oh man, I suck right now. Last summer uh, before, you know, I won that race, I smashed it and I did 375 for all five by five. And now I can barely do my best one was 349 and then I fell off a cliff. It's like, well, okay, but that's not the way it works. Humans don't progress infinitely. There's not a linear progression. There's an undulation to training load. And that rule can be synopsized with there are many times in your season when you have to take a couple steps backwards to take several steps forwards. Look, right? I did. So I um, did my last race just over a month ago at the end of or beginning of October. So we're now middle of November. I took several weeks off. I got finally back on the, the trainer last night and did intervals. And I was probably 40, 50 watts below what I was doing those intervals at a month and a half ago. And to tell you the truth, I looked at my watches last night. And I'm like, Woo, I don't normally do this well in November. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But compared to a month and a half ago, you, you know, I'd be crying. Well, and I think I think uh, that that idea that it's not linear and, and some of what you have to play into that, too, is how it feels. You know, you take that two steps forward. Maybe you don't even take a step back. Maybe you just stay in the same place. But, oh, right. gosh, it feels awful compared to those two steps you took forward. And 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 then the other thing we won't even, you know, we don't even talk about this, the 5% difference between every head unit on every right. and how it's going right. to measure, right? Like I have multiple power meters and my carbon one reads mm -hmm. slightly different than my aluminum one. Right. And, and, right. and this all, this is real, right? You can get a brand new carbon power meter. You're like, dude, I'm going to be amazing. Da, 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 and you're 20 watts lower. Apples to apples, oranges to oranges, and understand what those things are. Mm. And Colby hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we shouldn't be expecting athletes to understand that, but that is what you rely on a coach for. 
And I think sometimes coaches miss that too. Mm -hmm. It's just how do we how do we load? How do we load? How do we load? The load needs to be better. The load needs to be higher. So 2018, I finally kind of I always experiment on myself. So I kind of succumbed to what everybody had done because I was down to doing eight nine races a year, and everybody's you know all the athletes I worked with were saying you know why is it that you let your so they love to talk about CTL why do you let your CTL come way down why don't you just kind of maintain the level you know why do you you let the fitness come down so I finally went okay fine and I had a really good season in 2017 so I was I was all excited. And I can show you the graph. It's the one year where you just see my CTL never really drop. Right, right. Just stays at that level. And at first, I was like, damn, they've got something to this. Because in March, I was flying. I was doing really well in the races. By May, I was done. Yeah. yeah. And you talk about drop off a cliff. And we alluded to this in the cross episode. One of the things we found out about Max Chance was we left him up a couple of years ago. And he was super motivated. He was first year on the road, first year pro on the road. He was really driving, 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 driving. And he was just hanging out up there. He was hanging out up there. And, and everything I got back from the athlete was, I feel great. Yep. Dude, I feel great. Dude, I feel great. And I'm begging him to take that break, but dude, I feel great. Shows up at Colorado Classic and he's off the back. Day one, off the back. And then we started scrolling back and what we were looking at wasn't the number. It was how long we were steady at A-load. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. two years prior, and this is one of the benefits of working with an athlete for a long time, two years prior, he was too long at a different load. Mm. And that was 20 CTL lower than the load he was too high at or too long at this time. But for him, it became a duration. You have six weeks at load and then yep. we have to take a break. And that's different for every athlete. And you have to kind of understand that athlete. But I think one of the battles you're going to fight with athletes is how they feel, A, I feel great. I feel great. How you feel is it, there's relevancy to it. But one of the things you have to remember is you still need a break. You can feel amazing, but if you don't take that break, it doesn't matter. You were living on borrowed time. doesn't last forever. Right. It's even that idea of like, hey, I feel great in the first five minutes of this time trial at 110% of LT, <laughs> but you're living on borrowed time. Yeah. This is how it works. And the, the point that I really wanted to make there is it doesn't matter how much you're racing. Like some people look at pros and go, oh, they're doing tons of races. 2018, I did four races and I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. hmm. We get in this conversation about swimming. And I hate to bring up, bring up swimming again, it's but fine. there's this conversation. There's humans too. There, there's this conversation <laughs> that swimming is a burnout sport because mm. it's a tough sport. You, you, you chase walls and you stare at a black line. Mm. Swimming is not a burnout sport. The type of training that is prevalent in swimming is mm. burnout training. Right. So I think this is something that everybody has to understand. We've watched a million athletes burn out on the bike. Mm. Dude, the bike's rad. You can ride outside a ton. And then I've watched athletes ride inside on the trainer 630 in the morning every day because of their jobs. And they never burn out because of how they're training and what they're doing and, right. and, and where their mindset is. So it's not the stimulus. It's not the race starts. It's not the it's how the load is applied. Yeah. 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 And the timing. Yes. yes. Context. Context is very, very important. So one thing I wanted to jump in here, we were talking about what we can learn from the pros and how we build a season. One of the things is actually having a focus race, having an A race or having a peak yes. race. Um, we see this in cross a lot. You know, you walk into a season and they're trying to race every single one of these 15 to 20 cross races at the highest level they can get to. And we understand why, especially now that people are chasing USAC points or UCI points amongst the pros. But you still have to have this understanding of what you're, what, what's the A race? What am I really peaking for? Mm -hmm. And obviously, nationals goes on that list for a lot of people. But 
Maybe it's your travel race where you know there's great USAC points. You know, maybe it's a mid-season C1 for a pro rider. But learning where, you know, pros are prioritizing what it is that they do. There are training races out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the old minds, the old old school. If you're racing in leg warmers, it's a training race. Yeah. Right? Take them off. It's no longer a training race. And that maybe falls into some of that Euro nut, nutsy yeah. thinking. <laughs> but there's something that triggers, right? You take those leg warmers off and you know, hey, man, I'm in it. This is real. There's also something worth mentioning. Um, the type of race has a much bigger impact on the rider's physiology uh, in certain cases. So, for example, you do 15 or 20 cross races every weekend in a row. Every one of those races is a maximal effort of a given duration. And most for elite riders, that's an hour. But, you know, for a lot of other categories, it's 45 minutes or 50 minutes, 55 minutes. You, there's no – you can do a 50-minute criterium or an hour and a half long criterium. And you can sit in most of the time. And so you've got some snappy accelerations out of the corners. Depending on how flat it is, you may not even have that many of those. And then you're following wheels. So the point is the old school race into shape model was based primarily on road racing. And a lot of the older old school European road events, riders could go hide in the Peloton for a four-day stage race or five-day stage race. Yeah, of course, they got to make it up the climbs. But the rest of the day, they're just following wheels. It's like a giant motor pace session. That's a far different load than when you're racing cyclocross every weekend when you cross the line at the end of a cross race unless you intentionally shut it down you're smoked and it's the same is true with cross country yes and that goes into why my taper model is a little different for those events you have to be fresher for those types of efforts than you do for a given type of road race depends again on the road race a hill climb is different than a hundred mile flat road race in the southeast yeah which is also different than a hundred mile flat road race in colorado where everybody thinks it's going to be easy and then of course (laughs) people are crossing the line separated by minutes you know with blood coming out of their nose and (laughs) but yeah all right so we've talked about some of those things we can take away let's flip it around what can't we take away from pros looking at pros so i think a lot of um what we look at with pros is what are their race days like kobe alluded to this before even their flat one day races are 250k they're big races guys they're not counting a whole lot of criteriums as as race days so or their three-week stage races so there's something like this that adds some monstrous load to what it is that they're doing and, and they can approach those in different ways. There's eight guys on the team now. They can hide. Maybe they're only getting bottles for the first half of that race, and then they jettison it out and just roll it in. So a lot of their season model or what a pro is doing and what they're counting as a race day or how they're peaking for that race day is very different from a, ro- a rider who's riding a local schedule. They have a, maybe a couple long one-day races. You know, we use Colorado as an example. Early season, Boulder Roubaix is a long race. That's a pretty heavy miles for almost every category. Unfortunately, not so much for some of the early women's categories. We'd love to see that extend. But then you're into summer solstice, crit, 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 crit. And that load is very different in a one-hour crit. Um, You know, even if your job is to go blow that thing up, the intensity is not through the roof. It's, It's solid intensity, but it's only an hour long. And then we talked earlier, volume and intensity are your loads, right? That volume short, maybe you have a mid mid load intensity. Talk about a cross race, high intensity, lower volume, and how you judge those things. So it's difficult to use the pro rider model on counting race days or to race yourself into shape because the races they're doing are so incredibly different than the races we're doing for the most part. Yeah. When I, I have worked with, with several pros where their race calendar is so intense 
basically from March on, you barely give them an interval session. Yeah. It is really about just let's get you recovered and ready for the next race and just ride easier or rest, uh, which you just can't model after at all unless you're doing that volume of hard racing. I know it's hard to find that many races, right? That race recover volume model that they're doing in Europe early season, right? Uh, it's starting with San Sebastian in February and it's a month of race recover, race recover, race. That's it. Maybe a couple openers and that's it. We're, we're never going to model that here. You know, because even if our biggest load is a race Saturday, a race Sunday, usually one of them's crit. And then you have five days in between. Uh, we're not talking about a five-day stage race, three days, single-day race, midweek, single-day race, end-of-the-week, single-day race. I think sometimes people don't quite understand the load of a pro rider during those blocks either. You know, we we focus on the the uh, the classics. We see the weekend races, dude. They're doing Wednesday races like mm -hmm. crazy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, we're we're not in that place. Even if we're going and doing our Tuesday night crit, mm -hmm. that load's a very different animal. Well, this so the one thing I wanted to bring. I'm not sure if this fits under what you should take from pros or what you can't take from pros. But <laughs> most pros will tell you, oh, I need eight, ten races in my legs before I, I really feel like I, mm -hmm. I'm ready to race. So if you're racing three races in a season. You're not even halfway there. And I do believe so. there's just, there's something you get from race intensity. You cannot simulate with intervals. You can do all the interval work you want. That first race of the season is going to be mm -hmm. a shock to the legs. So again, does this fit under take from pros or don't take from pros? But if you're only racing three races in a year, you need to find ways to get that race intensity before you go to that first event or you're going to be pleasantly unsurprised or unpleasantly surprised. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you have to get creative on that. And as you noted, you know, you can go to Zwift in the basement. You're never going to push what you push in a race setting. Maybe get out there with some of your buddies and, and sprint each other and race each other for a one-minute effort or give somebody a head start, try to run them down, something along those lines that that inspires you the way a race day is going to inspire you. Um, and so when we get into that place where we're going just four or five races in a season, that's probably super important to model some training sessions going into that first race to give that because um, that first race is always difficult. Let's go there. Okay. Let's, let's, that's the scenario. So person X has four or five races he wants to do in a season. And the, we'll, we'll talk about two scenarios here. The first scenario being person X wants to do all of those races and they're crammed together in an eight week stretch. And then the second scenario we'll talk about is they're all spread out. But let's, yeah. let's dive into I'm the first really one. I'm really going to talk to scenario A because that is Ontario racing. So all okay. the athletes I was coaching <laughs> up in Toronto, yeah. uh, season starts mid April. It ends at the end of May. Okay. And that's because that's the only time we don't have snow on the road. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Snow's come in June and <laughs> no. So, so dive into that, Trevor. What, what, uh, what's that season typically look like? Well, so the first thing I'm going to surprise people with is the biggest mistake I see a lot of athletes make up there is they still burn themselves out. So that last race at the end of May, beginning of June, is the provincial championships. The races that everybody really cares about is right at the end of that block. And you wouldn't believe how many guys or racers don't even make it to those last couple of races because they're done. And their philosophy is the season is really short, so I need to come in firing on Hot. all cylinders. Yes. And not realizing that'll get you through April, might get you through the first week of May, but then you're done. Mm -hmm. So I have always struggled mm -hmm. with the athletes I coach up there of saying, you're not going to be your best that first race. Really focus on the base work. My belief is if you do a good base season, like really build that aerobic engine, and you go into the races, what you're going to find is 
I can sit in the field. I can stay with the lead group. What I don't have is that one-minute jump at the end to win the race, but I can finish seventh to eighth. And that's what I want for the first race. And then it really doesn't take long to turn you from that to somebody who's competing for the win. Mm-hmm. But you want to be there, you know, in that season. So I'll use that example, that kind of mid-April to first week of June. I don't want them really on top, uh, on really good race form until sometime in May. Right. And that's right. when the big races are. Assuming that their peak or, or their target races are at the end versus at the beginning of that block. Sure. And and you can look at it in microcosm as a big season too. I mean, you still can take a little two-day stand down or a little three-day stand down in the middle of that race block. Mm-hmm. If there's something really special for you as the first race of that block and you want it to really well right. at the first and the end, how do you get creative in the middle, right? How do you get that mm-hmm. little rest in the middle or... As Trevor was noting, maybe the races you're not as aggressive or super focused on are the ones in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you have to train through them or recover through them right. or something along those lines. Yeah. But the, the one thing I've never seen is somebody being successful at being at top form, even for that short a period of time. Right. That's interesting. It makes me wonder if that's sort of a a failing of human nature, which is that I think all athletes have such a vested interest in the outcome of their races. And the easy trap to fall into is let's say you have an eight week block of racing. What you want to do is go into that first race, that first race weekend, assuming that it's one of your races you really want to do well at. And your, your idea is to run hot through all eight weeks. Well, like Grant, like you were saying, some athletes may not have eight weeks in their system. They might be like Max and they've got six weeks tops. But even if you are an athlete who's got eight weeks tops, what we all want to do as humans is we want to have two or three or four weeks before where we're just smashing it in training where we're setting all our PRs and everything's going perfectly. Build that confidence. And that's great. You've got confidence. And then you can go to the line and just be ready to annihilate people, which for the record causes its own set of problems. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Right? I've gone to the line th- under that false veil at, at times. And it's just usually those races that I have that go very poorly. Um, but that said, and I've watched a lot of athletes go through that too. So different lesson in and of itself. But the point being is if you think you've only got six weeks or eight weeks or however many weeks, maybe you don't know how many weeks you've got at top fitness or a certain CTL, that's okay. But think about it logically. The smarter way to play it is to time the peak so that you are on form with your first weekend of racing, go out and perform, step to the line with sensible confidence, confidence in yourself, confidence in your training in the process, and then let the results be what they are. Do the best to execute on the day. You've done all the work. And that takes a mature athlete to get to that point. The athletes who are younger in their careers or perhaps don't have as much unshakable self-belief will want to go to the line having proven to themselves several times that they can go rip up their local climb super fast or win the group ride. And what they're not putting together necessarily is they're probably, they're basically spending their race days in training. Yeah. Yep. They're, and they're effectively extending that. They're trying peak. to. Yeah. Yeah. It's now 12 weeks if you're talking about an yeah. eight yep. week where they're trying to be on top form, but for the four weeks preceding that, they're actually they're on top it. form. They're yeah. smashing it. That's 12 week block. Right. Right. And I think we, I, I have a great story from my past on this. When I first started racing cyclocross and around here, I mean, the guys my age are really special riders and special racers. And, and we'd go out on those Wednesday World's Days, which used to be yeah, they everybody. Were, they man. were, they were true when they were Wednesday Worlds here. Yeah. They sure. were epic. Yeah. And you'd go out and I'd go out and I'd be, I'd be measuring my training based on Wednesday Worlds. I'm like, dude, I'm with the front group. Yep. I'm with the front group. And then I rolled into Saturday. <laughs> I'm going to win this weekend. And I'm like, I'm way off the back. What the hell happened? <laughs> and what, you know, what I started to come across to is what people were using Wednesday Worlds for. And the top riders were using them for a high level pace skill day. 
-hmm. We're rolling at high levels of pace and I'm working my skills or I'm going to work my start and then I'm going to float to the back and then I'm going to work my way through the field. So what are we using our Wednesday group rides for, Mm -hmm. right? What are we using our Saturday group rides for? And if we're using them for race days, if we're using them for confidence and we're using them to keep our buddies in their place, (laughs) then that, yeah, that season extends a lot and and things get real dangerous real quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which plays to a bigger point which is expand over a long timeline, look at the athlete and see, think about whatever analogy you want to use, how many bullets they have, how many really deep days do you have in the tank? And a lot of athletes don't distinguish, they don't understand that concept, so they use them without really thinking about where they're placing them. Mm -hmm. A professional rider, this is a takeaway that we can get from pros, a, a real pro knows when to save that super deep effort. They know, and... I, they probably I, have a larger cache of them to begin with, but they perhaps, also use them strategically. But, it, but the concept is still the same. Sure, I mean, just sure. because those people are the yeah. 0.1 of 1% doesn't really matter. The concept still applies, which is they have a limited number of efforts they can do that are super deep. And that applies both to volume and intensity. Mm-hmm. So they know they're not going to do a seven-hour training ride, walk through the door absolutely shattered. No smart pro really does that. Or if they do, it's very calculated and it's a very calculated build with a specific rest before a race. But very rarely they do that. Most training days are about stopping just short of that line and then saving that day for when they need it on race day. When they're racing for the win or they're racing for the best result they've ever had or they have to throw down in the high mountains to be a domestique for right. the guy who's winning the three-week Grand Tour or whatever it is. Well, and I think there's a there's a great point to be made for that is that just because you could do another one doesn't mean you should do another one. Just because you can roll another hour doesn't mean you should roll another hour. So that, there's that real fine line between what I am capable of and what is appropriate for today. Um, and then one one last thought on this stuff too is it's something really important to keep in mind is if we're training for confidence or racing for confidence, hey, Mark Cavendish was the greatest sprinter in the world, what, eight years ago? He was untouchable. He didn't win every race. Right. Uh, Cipollini did not win every race. Stuff happens. And you got to have that understanding and that ability to look at a process oriented goal and not a result oriented goal. Dude, I had a great sprint for third because I got boxed in back there. My my output was fantastic. I timed it great. I did everything right. Had some bad luck. And there's a lot to be taken from that. It's not as we talked about with high jumping. It's not a set result. Right. And and you got to be really careful of that. But you think about it, the winningest racer in the world will win like 15 to 20% of their races. Uh, and that's the winningest. You know, most people, it's maybe 5%. So if you're doing three to five races in a season, you can do the math. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to every race to win. And I think there's a great idea to go to some races to do totally different things. And if you're fortunate enough to have a team, go to some races and work for somebody else. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then go to some races where you're going to try to win. And that may mean you're getting in the breakaway. And that might not work. Um, but you have to take those risks and you have to figure out what it is that you're trying to do. There is nothing more fun than to go to a race and say, I'm racing for my teammate. So I'm going to get on the front and smash myself. And I don't even need to finish. That's great. <laughs> I just get to hurt everybody. It's, it's a blast. There's, 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 yeah, and, I, and I think riders miss that, right? They're, they're, you know, some of this is, is dog hanging their head out the window with the tongue flapping in the breeze just going, yeah. <laughs> and, and I love that. And, and I think that's one of the reasons most of us got into athletics, right? And then it morphs very, very quickly into how did I finish? What place did I get? What's going on, right? You know when you ripped it. 
We need a photo of that face that we can put yes, in the show do. notes. Yeah. <laughs> I could probably find it. I got some good pain faces through the years. <laughs> I, I don't want to get us too off track, but I, w- I wonder if we could use a case study here and, and use a particular pro to say what he's doing right and what he's doing wrong. Because mm-hmm. first of all, he's the most talked about rider in the world right now. He races across disciplines, but he also seems to get the fact that he can't win everything. So he has to dip in and dip out. Talking about Matthew Vanderpool, of course. So he's racing cross, he's racing on the road, he's racing mountain bikes. Next t- year, I'll probably be winning Dirty Kanza. What's he doing right and what's he doing wrong? I, I know it's hard you're, you're from, from the outside to judge, but it mm-hmm. seems like he's picking those battles. Um, he's well, Let's pick one really simple one. The, the biggest thing he did right was pick his parents. <laughs> sure sure <laughs> well i i think okay there's a great note it's a really really great note here is after worlds who heard from him he disappeared and how long did he disappeared for he disappeared for a month plus mm-hmm. and then he pushed back the start of his cross season twice yep because it was i need to recover and i'm not ready now i'm ready i'll right. step in and he stepped in and he did really really well and it was really fun as a cross specialist watching that first race his first four laps he was a disaster yeah his little mistakes he was making he was all over the map but what is different about Vanderpool is it took him four laps and then he had it again yeah. and he just like looked like amazing again it might take us four races but all right that's a genetic special piece there right so what does he do why aren't we doing that Where, where's that big break that we're not doing mm-hmm. right where's that Oh God, I'm making mistakes like crazy, but it's the first four laps of my season. Yeah, he he maybe figure out in a race, but why aren't we giving ourselves that break the first race we're back and cross? Right. Where we're trying to figure out how to do that off camber. Um, so that was the biggest thing I saw out of him. There's this very focus of when he stepped into road after cross worlds, disappeared in the middle of road season, when he stepped over to the mountain bike. Then it it was very, very rarely cross road mountain bike all in the same month so to speak right mm-hmm. they're very split off and then and then you see him with realistic expectations i really think that's another thing the first mountain bike race he stepped into he wasn't and and listen this is a guy that we've watched get really frustrated with himself and when he gets frustrated with himself he checks out you see that in the cross setting you see that even when he bonked at worlds that mm-hmm. wasn't him mentally but when he was done he's done mm-hmm. right and so he got his butt kicked in a couple mountain bike races early season for him, but you didn't see that dejection. He understood where he was stepping into, and he stepped into it appropriately. And this goes back to right where we started this whole podcast, which is sometimes us regular Joes will look at the pro season and go, my God, it goes from February until October. If they can last that long, I can last that long. And you have to remember, the season lasts that long. None of the pros last that long. They They don't do that. They take breaks. They have points in the season when they're strong, and they have points in the season when they disappear. And you talk to any pro, when they get get that week where they don't have to do anything, they go and sit on a beach. Yeah, they're on a beach. And and, and Instagram kind of shows that now, right? Hopefully. Hopefully they are. The only, only, um, well, there's one uh, exception to that rule, and it's the Yates brothers because they are in every race, but there's actually two. <laughs> <laughs> Doppelganger, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 yeah. they're either, and, and in a lot of those races, they're the first rider and the last rider. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. yes, yes. So Book, bookending the peloton. All right, sorry for the tangent, but yeah, let's jump into scenario B now. <clears throat> 
typical rider, regional rider, wants to do his five races throughout the season, and they're really spread out. He's going to do Land Run 100 in March. He's going to do a, a road race in June. He's going to do, you know, Steamboat in September. Something like that where mm-hmm. there's hu- there's months. Quarterly. quarter A quarterly race schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something yeah. like that. What? How does that person set up their, their season? So I'll start it out with going back to something we said earlier is this issue of you can't have race legs until you've got some racing in your legs. And so when it's this spread out, you can run that risk of every race is your first race. Mm -hmm. So whenever I work with an athlete who's in this scenario, sometimes you got to go with the poor man's approach to it. But leading up to that, each of those events, we need to find ways of getting race intensity. Even if it's just, hey, there's a Tuesday night throwdown going on. Mm -hmm. I want you to go to that. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you win, but I want you to destroy yourself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you, you said it you'd come into each of those four races kind of stale and then that's your one shot. And then, oops, I screwed it up. Yeah. I didn't have the legs or I didn't have the, the race confidence or something. And then, Oh, I got to wait another month. Mm. Um, so that, that's the, that's the danger there. What else would you add to that Colby? Uh, I would add that. So this comes back to our logic about how riders tend to think that they're different from pros. Let's be clear. There are differences between amateur riders and pro riders or aspiring riders and those who get paid. The the world tour pros are riders, men and women are riders who have already self-selected to be in the top, top 10th of 1% or maybe even a slimmer percentage than that. But that doesn't mean that basic training concepts and basic concepts of load do not apply to you as they do to them. So I think the error in logic that I see happening repeatedly is riders assume, well, okay, I've got my four races laid out for this season. And yeah, those are going to be pretty hard. But if a pro goes the entire year and trains all year, which we've talked about that, most cases they don't, I'm just going to train all year and get fitter and fitter through my four races. So I'm going to try to go really good for my first one. And then I'm just going to lift from there. I'm just going to get better. Yeah. Right? I'm just going to get yeah, better. better, um, and, better yeah. and that's that's not the way to look at it. If you're truly going to break the season into thirds or quarters, Treat each one like your world championship. Treat each one like Vanderpool does. Now, obviously, you can't take a month off, but what we what I run into with my athletes a lot is they'll do a national championship, and then it ends Sunday, and Tuesday morning, they're emailing me going, where's my training? Right. <laughs> right. Like, your training's in, in training peaks right now. Right. See how it says nothing? Yeah. That's yeah. what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Nothing. Right, right. And they're, they're, then I get the discussion of, oh, I'm worried about losing fitness. My next race is eight weeks away or six weeks away in this model, right? In our yes, in our scenario bay. <laughs> so to that end, I think you need to treat each one like a little peak and then have a small valley afterwards. And then is that's the perfect way to look back. And reflect on your preparation. Yeah, maybe your Did peak needs right to be analysis. higher. Maybe, maybe your peak needs to be lower. Right. Maybe you needed more, two more of those race intensity throwdown days, or you hire a motor pacer safely, or you <laughs> so four individual builds to four different races with right. four peaks, more or less. Sort yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. how I would tackle it. If the time, depending on the type of race and yeah. the terrain and where you live and all those other variables, of course. But fundamentally, that's mm-hmm. that's how I would look at that model. For yeah, sure. your your CTLs graph ought to look like the front range. Yeah. Right. Peak Valley, Peak, peak Valley, Valley, Peak, peak Valley. Valley. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and, and it's one nice thing you get out of this is each. So when you talk about one way in which you can progress through the season is each race is an experiment for the next. Mm-hmm. So maybe you try peaking strategy for the first one and go, yeah, that wasn't right at all. You have the time now before the next race to adjust that, try a different approach. 
and keep adjusting until you find what manipulate really variables, you. pull yeah. levers. <laughs> but it, you know, and, and now as we roll this into the fondo, yes, one one big race. You've got one. The scenario C, if you will, is you've got one shot to get it right. Let's add some pressure. Like this is a very meaningful yeah, well, yeah. event. For that was person. one of the first things I was going to say is try to find a way to unload the pressure on that. It's really, really hard to have that one race be the only race, the only performance measurement, all of those things. Even if you're not going to add little races, I would add little tests, mm -hmm. little opportunities to see what you can do that's special. And if you only have one thing in the season, well, let's look at it for from a couple of different angles. If you only have time for one thing in the season, you've got a really busy life. Let's have those goals be appropriate for you. And have fun, yeah. Yeah, and have fun. Right. And if you're looking at it and going, you know what? I just don't want to get too serious. I just want to have one race. I want to keep it fun. Then keep it fun, mm -hmm. you know? Right, and yeah. so I don't think you build your whole season around that one single Grand Fondo race. It's way too easy to miss it or it's way too easy to obsess and get in that last bit and refuse to rest or refuse to lay off the build. So if you're looking at that one thing where, you know, I want to be successful, I want to be to completion, then communicate that with your coach. Let's make sure we're working toward completion and fun and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing. We've had a lot of uh, listeners who have contacted us about how do I build towards a grand fondo. And usually what they say is, I'm not there to win it. I'm there to have the experience. Right. And so they wonder what's different. I will say some of these build and peaking strategies we're talking about are, are still important because you don't want to go to the grand fondo burnt out because you're on your best form a month ago. Mm -hmm. So you For still, sure not. still yeah. want the base and you still want to limit the time that you're doing some hard work. So you can go there and feel like you, you know, whether you're racing or just there for yourself, you still feel like you had a great experience. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you completely. If you have one event and you're really focused on it, you're either going to have an amazing season or a horrible season. <laughs> so right, I right. think it's always good. Even if it's just, okay, I'm doing this Grand Fondo in June, be aware of an event in September, mm -hmm. just in case everything falls apart in June, you got something else to look to. Mm -hmm. Colby? Yeah, I agree with those comments. I mean, I've had seasons where I've had almost one event per season, but I've also been racing for three and a half decades. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I know that that comment doesn't apply to to most of our audience, uh, probably, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think some run-ins, you know, this is where, what do you have that's a local tool? Okay, sometimes that can be limited uh, if you're in a place where there aren't any good group rides or maybe the group rides aren't safe, which is unfortunately becoming more and more common these days, right? Yeah. Um, arguably some of the group rides in Boulder aren't that safe anymore. Um, Cracked ribs to back that one. Up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe the group rides just don't work for your schedule or et cetera. Uh, and you're not the type of rider who's going to go out and hire a motor pacer, which would be another option to stimulate race intensity. Well, you know, there are a lot of things I don't like about Strava and there are a lot of things I love about Strava. Strava segments are, they're basically your do-it-yourself race. Yeah, yeah. And those can be really useful. So you lay out a calendar and you say, two weeks before, I'm going to go smash this Strava segment that is applicable to my race load. So if you're doing a Fondo with a lot of half an hour climbs, maybe you do, maybe you pick up a 20-minute climb and a 30-minute climb locally and you go warm up for an hour or two and then you smash those and, and you see what you can do. And then you're building up to that and it's like your trial race run. And... Yes, go so as far as to rehearse the food you're going to oh, eat during please. your Fondo, yeah. the hydration strategies, the breakfast, break out your race wheels, use the same kit, do as many things as you can on that day. The more rehearsals you have prior to your one event of the year to make sure everything's dialed, 
the better. I mean, I did Masters National Time Trial Championships this year just because they were in the backyard in Colorado Springs, and I made a crucial error. I actually changed the padding material on my aero bars nice. the day before. Nice. You dumb, dumb. No, nice. sorry. I did it about five days before <laughs> thinking oh, I was dialed, but what I forgot was I wore a long sleeve skin suit on oh. race day. And they were on bare skin. The new pad was perfect, but right. on the long sleeve skin suit, I was constantly sliding off the back mm. of the bars. Mm-hmm. So I started the time trial within the first 800 meters. Had to call myself a dumbass because. <laughs> well, we're not, not gonna, the first time, not the last. We're not going to judge Colby it. too much because I am racing that cross race tomorrow on a bike that I built today. So <laughs> well yeah, done. That that's going to be you fantastic. Bu- Wait, you built it or you had? No, to I didn't it. build it. <laughs> good, good. You won't. You won't. Jeez, uh, uh, yeah. if I built it, it would be one of those cartoons Wait. where you take two pedal strokes and everything falls Max off. Max didn't build it. Did no, no, oh, Eric. Good. Eric, even Eric, better, Eric. Eric. <laughs> Eric's looking over everything right now. So something I'm going to add to that. If you are, you have, you're just targeting one grand fondo in the season and, and you're just there to ride. Something that's very, very important is find ways to get experience riding in a Peloton mm-hmm. beforehand. Yes. I had that horrible experience of being in a grand fondo where just because of horrible coincidental timing, the A group and the C group merged and there were a couple riders in the C group who suddenly found themselves in a very fast, very experienced group. You've so told this story win, before. I think, and I tell this yes. And it's ends. It's not a pleasant ending for no. the woman. They got guttered mm. and they flipped out and yeah, she crashed hard, lost some mm. teeth. Yeah. Really. I mean, yeah. it was a horrible, horrible experience. And if you're going to go to a grand fondo, you need some comfort. So just go to a Saturday morning group ride. You don't have to go to the race one. Find one that's just everybody riding together, but get that comfort in a group. Yep. Final scenario we've got for you. I don't race at all. I just want to kick ass at the weekly race or weekly group training ride or whatever you want to call it. (laughs) The throwdown. Wednesday Worlds, whatever it is. Right. So, So step one, make sure you're not being that guy. (laughs) <laughs> and what I mean by that is um, we're watching it a lot in the group rides around Boulder is that people are using them for their races. And they just haven't really told, they haven't they told have to anybody pay. else. So, you know, that guy's guttering it or they're doing this or they're doing that. So understand your group ride, right? Understand the group ride you're getting into. If this is a no drop ride, then don't be the guy that tries to drop everybody. If this is a really focused training ride, don't gutter it. Do those things. But understand what it is that you're trying to be and don't be that guy. But, you know, if you're in that place, this comes down to, again, what we spoke about a little bit with the one race a season idea. Why is this the scenario you're in? If it is busy schedule, as it is those things, then really let's customize a plan and a program and a training schedule that builds around what it is that your life is. So maybe if it's about the weekly training rides, let's look at the season or the, re- the load, recover, load, recover in a microcosm. Maybe it's a Tuesday, Wednesday, two-day load with a Thursday drop and maybe some openers on Friday. Then we hit the group ride on Saturday. And then we tootle around a little bit on Sunday. We do our day off on Monday. But how do we load in a smaller plan so that, yeah, we have load, but we have recovery built in there too. Then look at your vacations or your work schedule or your family schedule and have that be the punctuation on your season, right? So, hey, I got a four-week block of I really want to smash four Saturday rides. Great. Now take a break. Mm-hmm. This is almost an easier way to overload yourself, not racing. And just every week, I want to go be on it. I want to be on it. I want to be on it. Understand there's weeks you're not going to be on it. And a lot of times while you're not on it, this is the coach in all of us about to say this. It's probably not that you're not on it because you're out of shape. It's probably not. It's probably that you're not on it because you're tired. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And that leads into that negative feedback loop. I'm not on it. I must be out of shape. I better train more. Got to train harder. <sighs> Still not on it. Got to train more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does downward spiral. All right, Colby, what do you think in that scenario? So, yeah, I think this is a, I've had several clients who've been in this scenario or in this situation where they're having trouble making it perhaps out of their local local town or local area, but they do have either a weekly criterium series or a weekly group ride. And that seems to be kind of the method or the, the repetitious circuit that they're sort of stuck in, right? And maybe that's by design, maybe it's by circumstance, but the problem comes when you've got weeks and weeks of this same load. And what is the enemy of progress? It is static load. And this is a basic concept I think a lot of athletes miss and maybe even some coaches. Simply that it doesn't matter if the load is high or the load is medium or the load is low. Static load is the enemy of progress. It's the enemy of change. It's And we want change in coaching. That's the objective. We want to make an athlete better than they are. So when we have the same load for 40 weeks a year, when there are places in the country who have these yes. types of events, right? Right. I mean, Boulder's got a local group ride that goes off at least 40 weeks a year. And I've got a couple of clients in Austin who do the driveway criterium series. Sure. That thing runs, it's probably over 40 weeks a year. It's crazy how many times you can race that. Uh, PIR in Portland, you name almost any city in the US, you've got a similar situation. And the problem is whenever that load is the same, then you run the risk of just sort of getting it. At first, if that load is challenging to your system, you'll respond to it and you'll get stronger and stronger and then you'll adapt to it. And then you'll get to the point where you can start to successfully apply your best ability, whatever that is to that load. And then you keep loading and keep loading with the same load and the response changes. It has to. So either you get injured or you get sick or you get burned out or you get bored or you just start to suck. Mm -hmm. And so how do you avoid that situation? Well, basically I'm agreeing with what Grant said, which is (laughs) be smart about it. Look, a very pragmatic way to look at it is integrate some lifestyle factors into this 40 weeks of group rides and say, I've got a wedding to go to. So that takes care of that weekend. And then Mm -hmm. it's my anniversary. So we're going to go on that weekend or my daughter's ballet show or whatever you have and build it around that. And don't feel bad about it. Take the ones you've got and use them. And maybe there, then you can start to add load and crescendo and say the last couple of weeks of this four week block, I feel like I'm probably going to go pretty good. We'll build a program around that. I will enjoy myself. I won't take it too seriously because it's a group ride. (laughs) I'll be safe and enjoy it and get what I'm going to get out of it. And then, and I'll mention that if you're doing this, if this is your cycle, I would encourage you to consider looking at something bigger. I think there are, there's a certain type of athlete who gets stuck in that little micro cycle. And really when you, when you look at yourself, honestly, there's a good probability that you have the ability to ride at a higher level, but you're finding reasons not to. Now, I'm not saying everyone's in that camp. There are people who just can never leave their city and this is what they've got. But most riders in that situation aren't in that situation, aren't aren't boundaried by those circumstances. They're actually, they want to go do an oat route or a road race or, you know, some Fondo or a state race that's in two states over and they can drive there, but they're finding reasons not to do it. And probably most of the time, those are fear of failure based. But I was going to say, creating those natural undulations in the training load through vacations or whatever busy weeks is good. And you can do it on a a season long basis. You can do it on a monthly long basis. You can do it on a weekly basis. So you can set up your training and look at your schedule for that week and say, you know what? I got a lot of meetings that one day. Well, that's okay. That's a good day to not. This week is, that's my going to be my rest day or my recovery day or whatever. So let's plan Mm -hmm. backwards from there a little bit and, and use those, those other things in life 
strategically yes, to map and things out. On that busy day where you've got a ton of meetings, you know you're going to be smoked, you could still start to choose to start the the training crit. But maybe your objective then is you're going to literally be last wheel and just float and enjoy it and use it as an opener and not contest the finish. And it's going to be considered your rest day. Also point out that maybe you have an eight week or nine week or 12 week stretch where you don't really have anything happening. There's no 4th of July vacation. There's no whatever. Be smart. Don't think I'm Superman. I can make it through all 12 weeks and smash everybody and win every preem in this training crit. You probably can't. <laughs> right, Be smart. Right. Take a break halfway through. Just don't do it. Do something else. Go for a long ride. Don't ride your bike. Figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Go for a hike. So I have an athlete that I coach up in Toronto who he's never done a race in his life, but mm-hmm. he goes religiously to what's called a donut ride, which is a big Saturday morning ride. Yeah. And when I started coaching him, I basically said, look, you got a choice here. Um, I can keep you mediocre to decent all year round, or we can pick a couple points in the year where you're going to be really strong. So it's kind of, we're going to do a build without a target event at the mm-hmm. end of it. It's right. just kind of a target period. And we chose the latter. And what I love is all a lot of the guys on the donut ride just don't understand him. And they ask him about it. So like some points in the year you show up and you're just hanging <laughs> on. Other times you're right. absolutely ripping us apart. But you, I've, I've talked with him about it. He's like, I really like this. I prefer yeah. to have that. I have a six-week period where I can just crush everybody Mm -hmm. and I am on form. And he enjoys that a lot more than just being kind of decent all year round. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's not pinning on a number, but for him, that's his outlet. That's his racing outlet in a sense. Mm -hmm. All right. It's time for take homes. We got 60 seconds on the clock for you, Mr. Grant Holicky from Forever Endurance. Wait, I'm flipping the five minute timer. Oh, five minutes. (laughs) It's going to quickly turn into one minute and go. Uh, well, without Max here to screw me up in the first 10 seconds, this ought to be seamless, right? Um, I think the, the big takeaways here are maybe step one, find a coach. Find somebody that can help you map out this season. And that may mean, not mean you have to hire somebody full time, but maybe you have somebody that can just give you some consultant, some just some thoughts of, of what this season ought to look like. We can be our own worst enemy. We can be the people that want to do a little more, a little more, a little more. Be smart about your rest. Be smart about your loads and make those two things very distinct and clear. We talk about it in training. When it's time to go hard, you go really hard. And if it's a base day, ride at base. But when we look at this big season, let's look at it the same way. You want to have a really big load? Be focused on that load. You want to recover? Put your legs up. Don't do anything. Sweet. Perfect. All right, Colby Pierce, you've done this several times before. Take it away. 60-second take-homes on season planning for limited racing. Yeah, I'll agree with Grant. I think a starting point for a lot of people tackling this kind of equation could be to hire a coach. I mean, I'll say hire a good coach in any case, but we want to respect- Are you taking new clients, by the way? (laughs) Depends on the client. (laughs) Just kidding. The answer is depends. Uh, So I think the key is to look at the- fluctuations or natural wave-like function to any season like this and consider where the events fall and then how you're going to apply load and recovery within that. And that can be a confounding equation to look at for a rider. Uh, That's where a coach's objective eye can really help Um, and experience and discernment. So this is, this is key to the equation, but some athletes may be able to figure this out on their own. But really what I'm trying to say is respect the wave of load relative to your competition dates, whether your competitions are clustered closely together or whether they're spread out. We still have the same basic principles, which is you have to train hard enough to get yourself better. And then you need to taper off and rest so that you don't go to the, to the 
event carrying too much fatigue. When your events are spread out over a longer timeline, then as we discussed, it becomes a question of, do you, are you trying to maintain peak fitness for all of them? Or are you taking a couple of those events as part of your progression and part of your build towards the peak events? And there's a lot of minutia and subtleties in that. But really, I think looking at the big picture and considering the application of load relative to the competition dates is the big, the big takeaway. That's a really critical process. And even if you figure it out yourself or you think you have it figured out, it's not a bad idea to have someone look it over and give you their opinion because in coaching, you know, coaching is 80% art, 80% science, right? See what I did there? So (laughs) there are a lot of ways to skin a cat and an experienced coach could look at what you have written down or your ideas on how to apply load. And they probably will have some good input one way or another. And that's food for thought. You run it past a few people and now you've got a good recipe. Any salt in that recipe? Pinch salt? Just enough. Just, just like enough. threshold. Green salt? Green, green salt. salt. Our five minute timer is green. Sorry. Green Tre- and ham. Trevor, Coach Connor, 60 seconds. You know how to do this. Go for it. So whether you are just doing a grand fondo, you hit the Saturday morning race or training rides every once in a while, or you're racing just a couple races a year, or you're a pro doing 60 races, there are a few things that apply to everybody. One of them is we all like to perform. We all like to PR. We all like to have points where we go, wow, I am just doing better than I've ever done. Uh, if you want to get to that point versus just always kind of be the same level all the time, there are certain principles that apply. One of them is overload and recovery. You have to do that. You have to have points of really stressing yourself in times where you let your body adapt and recover. The other thing that applies no matter what is you need that period of time where you're doing more of that base work to improve that aerobic engine. And then you need that period where you're hitting yourself really hard with the high intensity work to build that that top end fitness so you can hit your PRs and just be aware of the fact that when you hit that point, you're on a time limit before you have to take a break again. And timing that, being aware of that, knowing when you want to hit those points is really key no matter what you're doing. Chris? Well, mine's kind of on the practical side of things. I I love... I love mapping and maps and planning and and I feel like I'm a pretty organized guy. So I like to think of these, uh, as I alluded to earlier, with um, thinking of these undulations throughout the season, throughout the month and throughout the week. And, you know, you can do that by if you're if you're a user of Training Peaks, um, you can do it there by like dragging and dropping and, and, and matching it up with how busy you are in life and the, the vacations you might take and the business trips you might take. If you're not on training peaks, you know, like do it in Google Calendar, color code everything, see how many meetings you have one day and, and, and map your weeks around that, map your months, months around that. I think sitting down before the season begins and having a plan is great. And looking at it from that broad point of view is great. And then getting into the season itself, uh, you know, know that you're going to change things, know that you're going to need to change things. You're going to want to adapt the schedule as life comes at you in different ways and being able to sort of drag and drop your life around and your training life around in different ways to, to make a, a, a better blend of, of load and rest is, is really helpful if you can see it and visualize it in front of you. 
That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Colby Pierce, the infamous Grant Holicky, the very organized Trevor Connor, I'm that guy, Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Bye.